Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status is the only K-12 data analytics platform designed to turn analysis into engagement. To learn more about how School Status can change your school district, head over to schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, Episode 91, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. Is the PISA test measuring the wrong things? The director says they might be. And should it be against the law to post video of a school fight. Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest or guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we are diving into the steps districts should be taking to protect their data. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by teacher extraordinaire, Lissa Pruitt. Lissa, how are you doing? Great. Spring break is real, real soon. Spring break. I mean, didn't you guys just have a break? Oh, <laughs> you are a dog. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Everyone that I know that's a teacher yeah. that's listening to this yeah. is going to be like, what did he just say? Yeah, no, you guys are definitely deserving mm. deserve Actually, a break. Actually, our break, just so you know, was taken away for a bad weather day. You lost uh, President's Day, I thought. That was our last break. Oh, okay, that was the last about? one. I was talking about <laughs> Christmas. But, oh, Okay. <laughs> Didn't you have a break at Christmas? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, so, so spring break, uh, you got big plans? Mm, no. Just a whole, like a staycation? Yeah, because yeah, I have to pay for my son's senior trip, so uh, but you're, we're not you, going anywhere. Are you going on the senior trip? Yeah, that's part of the expense. Okay. But, you know, you had to have a chaperone. and Do you really have to have a chaperone for seniors? Yeah, based on the amount. Ex- no, like if graduated you like, seniors. If you have like 20, if you have 20 seniors going. Yeah. You have to have 15 chaperones. Wait, wait, wait. It says who? Well, the way they split them up in the rooms. You have to have an adult in every oh, at room. Oh, at the place you're going. Yeah. Okay, I thought you were saying as like a school rule, but no, I'm like, they're done, right? No, but as, yeah, as yeah. an adult in every room. And so, I, you know, so So this is going to be tough for you to go to... Whatever. Where are you going? I don't like to reveal things. I mean, I mean I've no got one's a lot of track, fans out there, Nick. No they don't need to know where they can catch me. At Turks and Caicos. <laughs> Is that where it is? Something like that? Know. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Act like you don't know. You already got your passport. All right. We'll go ahead and jump into the uh, teacher's lounge. I think we're we're keeping it a little international, right? This is amazing. I, I will probably talk way too long about this. Just cut whatever you need to cut. But, okay. So we have talked before about tests. I think, what was it, MIT that was making a test? Right, yeah, that we, did, we would, did that interview where yeah, they, they that, measure curiosity. Yes, yeah. curiosity and creativity and problem solving. And so this this whole, there's, there's I, I didn't even know this was happening, but this is the Program for International Student Assessment, okay? Basically, it is created, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, Andreas Schleicher. You gave He's it a German. Me, He's German, so however you would say that. It's uh. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not trying. And- Andres Schleicher. He works for the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, known as the OECD. That's so, what we'll call it from now on. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. And the article that I read that was like eight days long, that's what they refer to it as, okay. as OECD. So since 97, he's started worrying that we still have 
as a, as a way of teaching, our teaching model, he calls it as the industrial model of education, where it's kind of like factory, you know, we open up kids' heads, pour in knowledge, mm-hmm. and outcomes, a regurgitation of what they've learned. Okay. So he says that we are, we're failing, and that in the, you know, on the horizon and with When he all says the, we, he means the world. The world. Yeah. So he says, you know, with, you know, artificial intelligence is on the horizon, that we are basically treating our human children basically like machines. So everything we are teaching them to do, a computer could also do. So basically like math, a computer can do math better than me, probably. Right. Without error. For sure. Yes, (laughs) without error. So why even bother teaching me math? Well, he's saying it's important to know how to do math, but we're placing far too much time and emphasis on math. Hmm. He says that we better wake up and, and one of the things he said that I thought was really interesting is he said, look, guys, I know people think I'm crazy and I have no problem looking at this problem in terms of decades. Like it's going to take decades. There's going to be waves of change, but we better start now because, you know, maybe it isn't important for everyone to learn algebra three right. in high school. Why? Why would they need that? Maybe, maybe not everybody needs algebra in high school. So we need to be teaching things that computers can't do. Right. He was like, we need to look at the human. Yeah. And what is it that we can do that computers cannot do? So here's what those yeah, things are. Yeah, I'm curious. Are. What, what <laughs> so is that those exactly? skills, he calls them uniquely human skills. That is independent thinking. So... If this happens, then I need to do this, which a computer can do and troubleshoot up to a certain extent, but then there are times that right. you stump a computer, At least right? They, yeah, at least so far. So, Once they can, that's when we all get worried. Right. Yeah. Teamwork. A computer cannot do teamwork. It's true. Caring for others. Empathy. Mm-hmm. Creativity. Yeah. Problem solving. All true. And And to an extent, you know, a computer is a great tool for a lot of those things, mm-hmm. but a computer cannot do it by itself. Right. And so if we are worried about the future and jobs and things taking away from our children of the future, we better make sure our children are equipped with these uniquely human skills, says this man, this data Schle- scientist, Schleicher from Germany, that we better get on the good bus and start taking a true interest in those things because those things are going to be what makes the world go around in the future while computers do everything else. So how do you drive that change? Well, he th- this article basically talks about the test that he has that measures different things, and then it also rates you against other countries. So this test has been given to over 500,000 kids in over 79 countries every three years. What test? So this is... This test, the program for international student assessment. The, P- he, the PISA test. The PISA test yeah. that he helped develop. Right. So the first test was given in 2000. And it's really an interesting to look at all the diagnostics because it breaks it down based on empathy. It even breaks it down about how did the child feel about themselves that day? Like, did they feel confident? Do they feel happy? So it's neat to look at, okay, if they're scoring high but they didn't feel happy or some kids in some countries were scoring high and they were happy. Mm -hmm. So 
you know, there's, of course, a lot of problems that people say about the PISA. There are things that they say is, you know, the chat, the test changes so often and it's con- then it gets to where there's so much testing and here we are complaining about testing, yet we're implementing more testing. But I have to say, I think it's interesting. He's saying he's not really talking to the teachers. He's talking to the big dogs up top. That's what he says is, hey, if you're in charge of an entire district, if you're in charge, if you're the big guy that makes the big decisions, you need to look at this and you need to start making changes now. So he is overseeing the PISA test. Does he want to change the test? Yes, he wants to add to the PISA test. Okay. So whereas some people are saying we're, we don't even want to be a part of testing and that's wrong, he's saying, no, the PISA st- test definitely measures skills, but it's measuring skills historically the way things used to be. And if we're looking forward at the way things are going to be, we better start measuring some of these uniquely human skills on this to really see a good gauge of how we're doing and how we all relate and compare to each other globally. So, so I guess he's going to try to make the test where it's going to measure problem solving and he, yes, that's collaboration. Yes. And also empathy and things like that. That um, seems difficult to make that test though. Yes. Yeah. We've talked about this before. Like how, how do you even do that? Like, you know, do you create scenarios and they have to think through it right then and, you know, but a lot of it is done in the classroom. You have to allow your children. You cannot just do direct instruction and say, I'm the giver of all the knowledge and you are the taker of all the knowledge. Instead, you have to allow kids to work through things complex on their own to where they're able to figure it out through teamwork and through failure to where they learn and pick up some of those things too. And and so this, as of right now, I guess, and it's, traditional format the PISA test like the U.S. doesn't really typically score that great I think we've talked about this in the past in the like, middle yeah, we're, yeah in the middle. We're, we're not like way up there at the top yeah so um yeah I wonder if if they change it we may organically move higher or like would we move lower or would we all remain the same well you know? so like the PISA ranking for the world's best team players okay so that we're measuring team players okay, okay on the this is for the collaborative problem-solving scores, okay? okay? First place, Singapore. Second place, Japan. Third place, Korea. Canada, fourth. Mm-hmm. Then we are second to last. The United Kingdom is last. Well, out of, looks like 10, 11. What do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Out of 10. Mm-hmm. So, so, so we're eighth. Yeah. And all the scores were pretty close, neck and neck, I will say. I see Estonia's ahead of us. Could could you I'm not trying to put you I can't I mean, point, I can't no. point to Estonia on a map. No. With like if you took off the names of a map. I thought I you were about vaguely, to ask me why would they be ahead of us and maybe, I don't even know enough to know to, right. maybe to they tell can, you. Maybe that's part of the reason why is because we can't point to Estonia yeah. on the globe. I, I mean I wanna say it's um it is Eastern European, right? So, and it's probably like kind of towards the south, kind of almost between My Russia mom is and Turkey. So upset oh, yeah, right she's now. dying right now. <laughs> she died. I'm looking it up. Uh, so, this was interesting finding. They asked children about their anxiety while you're looking it up. I'm just going to yeah. move on. Denmark, US, and Canada all reported, children all reported that they were very anxious even when they knew that they were prepared for the test, that they 
show the highest levels of anxiety. All right, Estonia. It is kind. It is Eastern European, but it is way further north than I had in my mind. I was thinking more like like near Ukraine and Georgia. It's really between Latvia and Finland. Like it's right below Finland. Okay. But then next to Russia. All right. They can see Russia from their house there in Estonia. So. You're going to laugh at my joke. Back on topic. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that he said based on looking at the whole child, the human child, he said, now this is crazy, but whatever, he said class size does not matter. If you look at China's results, it is irrelevant to learning because China has 50 kids in a class, yet they perform strikingly well. So it's not the class size that matters. Mm. It's the quality of teacher. It has reported on the well-being of the child. Switzerland and Netherlands scored high academically. And also those students felt that they were happy in their lives. But Korea scored well academically, yet reported that their well-being was miserable. Overall, I certainly agree with everything he's saying. Like, I worry about, like, what career my kids are going to take. And I always try to think, like, can a computer do what they're about to get get into? Um, so I think it's certainly on right. the right path. And can you imagine being at high? I mean, I don't have young, young ones anymore. Right. But can you imagine for your young child. Right. a three-year-old. Having them four. come home one day from school and show you their score on their empathy test. Yeah. You know, you hope that they... You, you know. Yeah, I hope they hit it out of the park. Yeah. Yeah. But also to know that they're working on it and improving it, that it's truly something they're practicing. Yeah. Something I that think, is being measured. I think that's a good thing. And and I am a believer that I, I feel like empathy is very much an innate quality, but I also do think you can practice empathy. And Absolutely. You can, you can learn to be can more fake empathetic. It. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's okay. And I mean, I could go off the rails here, but there was once this um, this American Life uh, episode about this this guy who who was Aspergers, and and it took him a while to even realize that his wife didn't know. But once they identified that he was, he then would do things to I don't want to say to fake it. Essentially, like yeah. so basically, he would go out of his way to be like, "You look very nice today," and, and stuff like that. And and they both both had this understanding that. He was trying and he was doing everything as could. It's just the way he was programmed. Right. Um, but we're all programmed, you right, know? Right, right. So, like, we are all programmed to act a certain way in a certain setting, you mm. know? Like, you're not really supposed to pull your phone out in church, right? Or while someone's publicly speaking. But if you're never taught that, you would be amazed, especially right. like in second grade and third grade, the youngsters I teach. They they do not seem, you know, you would think they just pick up on things, but they don't always yeah. pick up on things. And if they're not in those settings to know how they're supposed to act, you have to tell them. So it would be the same as practicing empathy or practicing problem solving, you know, practicing teamwork. You know, you have no idea how many times I have to say to paint partners, mm-hmm. that's your partner. You have to work it out. Maybe you need to ask yourself if you're being part of the problem or if you were the whole problem <laughs> i yeah. mean good lesson yeah well uh speaking of phones and technology uh, we're going to switch gears a uh, mother in louisiana was arrested for posting a video of high school students fighting on social media um and i just kind of wanted your thoughts on that like should it be a crime to post video of a fight at a school 
Well, I mean, this is so hard. I, I hate those fight videos. They make me sick to my stomach. If they did not have a, if you know, if they signed a photo thing saying that they're not allowed to yeah, have this, their photo this, released. This is like she, she was arrested by the local police department in Scott, Louisiana. A child. No, a mother. Because mm-hmm. this is what happened. The The child got video of a fight that he was involved in. So the mother went and posted it. Look at the, what's the happening mother, in our school. Exactly. And then the local police charged her with unlawful posting of criminal activity for notoriety and publicity. That was basically what the charge was. Mm. Um, and it, which carries a fine of $500 and up to six months in prison. So I, I like the idea. My, my gut reaction is mom shouldn't be posting that. That's, that's bad parenting, period. But at the same time, I also wonder if it's not a bad law to make it illegal to post video of criminal activity for notoriety. Let's say um, you, you have video that you got of the local mayor snorting co- cocaine and you post the video. I broke the law because he was committing a crime and I had video of it and I posted it and you could argue for notoriety. So I t- potentially, so I just, I feel like the law is messy at the same time. You stick following me? Yes. I mean, I feel like this is a little different because it involves children. It is different. So you're but, posting someone else's child right. doing something that they shouldn't have been doing and you're airing it out there. But so the that, fact that that's a law is what bothers me. That you can, it's against the law to post video of a criminal activity. I feel like the law is is phrased very vaguely and opens the door to other problems. So like you're saying, if I saw a hit and run and happened to be videoing, mm-hmm. someone hit a car and drove off and I posted it on Facebook and said, does anybody know who this car is? Because I just witnessed him do a hit and run. I could be in trouble. I mean, we would need to talk if to, I live there. <laughs> we need to talk to law enforcement in Louisiana, but that's the way I read the article. Now, whether or not it's for notoriety and publicity is, is that the the bar? Like, did you, did you post it for notoriety and publicity? But at the same time, what if I had a local blog that I ran and it was like a local news blog that is notoriety and publicity, you know, that I would be posting this video of a hit and run that might involve somebody who's a local restaurateur in town or somebody yeah. who's well known, you know, um, would I be breaking the law? And I feel like according to this standard, I would be breaking the law, which I think is ridiculous. Yeah. But I also think it's ridiculous that a mom's posting video of right. school fights. Yeah, right? I know. See, that's so like, it's just, it's just I, a weird spot. I get what you're saying about the law and all. I'm just saying, why can't everybody just be nice? You know, like, right. why are you going and posting that? I don't like it when, I, I don't like it when children video fights because right. those children that are in the fight, one of them is hoping to be videoed, hoping. Yeah. And There's, the other one is completely blindsided. Right. Or they've planned it all day saying, you know, we're going to fight today. We're going to fight today. Everybody's ready. And yeah. yeah. And, and they want it to be videoed, which only gives them attention. And you don't need to give those children attention. They don't right. need any attention. Are you ready for the uh, bright idea? Yes. Our guests in today's Bright Ideas segment are two gentlemen very well versed in the world of student data as well as the security surrounding that data. We have Dane Conrad, who used to serve as the director of technology at a few different large school districts, and now he's the technical onboarding specialist at School Status. And we have our very own Russ Davis, the CEO of School Status, who has a deep understanding in the challenges that school districts all around the world face. Russ and Dane, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Hey. 
Um, yep, glad to be here too. I'm really excited to have you guys because Lisa and I, I don't know, it was a few episodes back, we stumbled across this article in Ed Surge, and then Lisa and I tried to talk about it. But really, I needed I needed experts like you guys to be here. And what that article article was about was it was basically saying that a cybersecurity incident strikes K through twelve schools nearly every three days. Do you guys believe that 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 is the case from your experience? Yeah, nationally or even internationally, I'm sure that's probably uh, not too far off the exact point. Yeah. Russ, what do you think? Uh, I, I think I would be surprised if it wasn't more because I think a lot of it probably isn't isn't um, disclosed, I guess, openly. So I, I think about things, Dane, like a laptop getting stolen that may have had student data on it. Right. And I know that most districts don't use, you know, any kind of whole disk encryption unless they're using like a Mac or something like that because it's kind of a pain in the imaging process to deal with. Um but I'm honestly, I'm surprised it's just only every three days. I think it happens much more frequently, but is it just never makes the media. Do, do you think it's a bad idea? And I know you guys may be conflicted with your answer here, but do you think it's a bad idea for legislators to be like, school districts should be tracking and disclosing this when they think they have a data breach, they should be required to report it? Uh, I think most most law most states already have laws in the books about it that you should you know re- have reasonable disclosure that if a you know there's a breach that's occurred that almost assuredly data was accessed. Um, for instance, if somebody steals a laptop and it's encrypted with you know good encryption and a good password, I don't necessarily think that that is necessarily necessary for disclosure. Um, you know, I. I I just think it's unlikely that somebody's going to get access to that data, especially if you have like remote kill capabilities for like laptops and phones and things like that. Dane, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, as far as the legislature goes and existing laws, there's probably some regulation there already. Um, And I know I agree with what you were talking about, about data breaches not being disclosed. I was at a leadership summit in Chicago last summer. And so there were leaders from around the United States that, and, and there was a session devoted to cybersecurity and data breaches. And I was a little bit surprised by the number of people attending. And these were from large districts, uh, super districts, if you want to call them that, who sure. uh, replied back to the question about how do you publicize or how do you respond and let the public know. And, and in more than one case, those you know IT professionals were saying, we don't. We chose not to disclose. We keep it quiet and don't tell the public, which I thought, um, has has some very dangerous implications going forward. Um, if something is actually used from that data breach, and then sure. it, then it's a double whammy back on the district. Not only did you not tell us, but now it's being used against us, and so there's a, some liability there. I'm sure this leads me to one of my questions. Actually, so do people even understand what type of data is at risk? Like, what what can our students' data like? What could expose them? And then actual personnel, teachers, and so forth? Well, I, I think the blast radius for students is actually fairly low. There's definitely more data there, but it's really, I mean, it's not terribly valuable right now, in my opinion, um, to, to anyway, third parties, because if you think about like what where most data breaches occur, they're really kind of huddled around financial crimes, right? Somebody's looking to steal your email address and password if you reuse it on a site, They'll hack a database of another company and um, then, you know, try that on PayPal or your banking institution or whatever the case may be. 
and you know they're trying to transfer eight hundred dollars in your PayPal account, right? Like mm-hmm. I think that is the most common occurrence. Um, you know, I think in this case, we see a lot of risk around employee data. So phishing is a real problem. In fact, if you email any school district in the U.S. just about now, whenever they reply, they'll have an external um, tag on the front of that message. And the reason they do is so that people know that this message didn't come from outside. So, for instance, even at school status, we get phishing attempts and all the time or, in, you know, basically impersonation where um, somebody will send a message to our chief financial officer asking her to wire money, right? And in our company, only I have that authority, right? Um, Or asking for her to send me the W-2s for all of our employees for last year. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a policy in place that that just, we just don't transmit that email over, we just don't transfer that information over email. And most school districts, I'm sure, should adopt a similar policy if they have it. But that's usually where the data breaches are occurring. So if I'm hearing you right, like as for students, I mean, unless you're, say, president of the United States, there's really not a whole lot of value into like your, your, your grades and your transcript, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it will be valuable. I think if you take, you know, the socials of students and, um, you know, you, you wait a few years, they'll be valuable. But honestly, for most school districts in the country, you're not required to give them your social. In fact, I, I don't, I wouldn't if my child were going to school because I just don't think it's a necessary indicator. Yeah, uh, we, Dane, what, what say you? You're closer to this than I am. Yeah, we tried to get away from putting Social Security uh, numbers for students in our SIS, student information system. But there are probably still districts that do that. Uh, and one of the reasons why we got away from that was because of uh, the data breach uh, possibility and, and just having that information for students. Now, the um, the richness for student information from a criminal aspect, if that social security number is there, is high though, because um, if you think about it, uh, if somebody steals my identity and they might, they use my social security number, uh, typically at some point I'll fumble upon it. So I'll see sure. information being accessed on my credit card or my debit card, mm. or I'll get credit card replies. Um, but for a student, they're not necessarily in that environment. So if a criminal gains access to a student information system that does include that does include PII information, then it can be years before they stumble upon the actual criminal use of it. So they go to apply for their first loan for a car or uh, they're applying for a job and suddenly they have bad credit score and it's because their credit information has been generated on that fault on that theft and then it's being used criminally and and now they have to sort of recognize and uh, adjust to that criminal behavior well let's call that pro tip number one so if you're if you're listening to this and you're a school district you should be checking with your i guess technology director and saying are we storing social security numbers in our syst and if we are, why? Like, is right. it is there a necessity to do that? And, right. and you're saying probably not. Probably right? not. No. Okay. So uh, Russ mentioned phishing attacks. Um, that's uh, I'm going to try to explain this to somebody like they're trying to explain it to myself. But it's basically where somebody gets an email and it's like, I need this, your password, and it looks as if it's coming from somebody important, somebody within the school district might be from your technology director. Right. But the fact is, it's it's a different address and it just has that look, and they're just trying to fish literally. Right. and get that information. Am I understanding well, I, this right? It, 
That's correct. And, and a good example would be if the most recent one is just using, they'll register a domain that has similar characteristics. So um, it'll be Russ at schoolstatus.com, but the O's are zeros, right? Mm-hmm. So you get this email and you kind of look at the header and yeah, it looks close enough. And, you know, you're kind of wondering, do I respond? This is my boss, you know, and he right. told me to do this right away. Um, like we get, re- we get requests and people to say, Hey, this is Russ, go to this store and buy gift cards and send me the numbers. Cause I want to send it to someone. Right. Like those are usually pretty good red flags, but in the moment when, you know, it's not uncommon for us to use a gift card as a giveaway at a trade show. So if they hit the trade show person, which they have before, right. then they may be likely to do that. It's all about user education. And, um, I want to hit on something that Dane talked about. Dane said that they, um, got rid of social security numbers and their sis that the district was from. That is a good risk mitigation strategy. So that like there's some information that schools are allowed to disclose under FERPA, uh, directory information, um, what student, the student's name, what grade they're in, that sort of thing are generally allowable unless a parent opts out under directory information. Where they live and stuff like that generally isn't. But if something gets out and you say, look, this is what they got was directory information only, and that's already publicly available, that's a pretty good public narrative as opposed to they got directory information and that student social and birthday, right? Like birthday, yeah, you're definitely going to have to track. But the social, we're not saying don't keep their social. We're saying keep it in the vault, right? Don't put it in electronic form. You know, most every school has a vault, has a secure room that has a sign-in and sign-out procedure, and it's watched fairly closely. Um, and it's usually that student's cumulative folder and that sort of thing. Put it in there. Um, that's one of those things where going like low tech can actually reduce risk. Mm-hmm. Dane, to prevent phishing, I think Russ said it's user education. Did you guys like frequently send out emails reminding employees like watch out for these things? Yeah, there's some there's some great companies that uh, districts are generally aware of. One of those um, that we would get uh, solicitation emails from, and then actually followed up and and used occasionally was no before no before dot com, uh, and they'll they'll even but besides supplying uh, flyers and PDFs that you can pass out or electronically send out to try to educate users about phishing, um, they'll also run phishing uh, attacks, more or less. So, oh, like basically like testing the system. Yes, exactly. Ah, so, that's cool. That is cool. So you send you you um, work with them, and they prepare like a phishing email, and they'll send it to your users, and then you'll get uh, statistics back about how many people clicked on the link. I mean, did you know who, like in your district, like did they, so you could go educate that person on a one-on-one basis? Yes. It, was it ever a surprise to you or was it kind of no, the usual suspects? It's never a surprise because it runs the gamut. Uh, I mean, uh, we try to educate, but they're the general public. I mean, it's no, there's been tech directors I know that have uh, accidentally given uh, data uh, or information out uh, innocuously. Uh, never was in, uh, the type of data that could hurt anybody, but, uh, you have foibles all the time. So they're just as much, even your best educated user can accidentally click on something occasionally. It happens to everybody, right? So recently I'll give you an example. I work in this space, right? I have a, um, a vulnerability, uh, management company that basically scans district perimeters, looking for security flaws, things like that, that are known. 
And recently I was staying in a hotel and I got a call at 11 o'clock at night and it was from the phone on my desk at the hotel. And they said, Hey, this is the front desk. There's something with your credit card. We don't have the CVV right. And they basically teased out all the information on my credit card piece by piece. Mm -hmm. Very apologetic, very nice, you know, basically said they were going to credit me the night back. And then I hung up the phone and was like, oh, no. Yeah. So I called the, I called the front desk and they were like, no, absolutely not. You just got and scammed. It turned, I, I just got scammed. So I immediately called and canceled my credit card. And they, of course, American Express issued a new one. It's my corporate card, which is real pain in the behind if, if you're a company. And so, you know, it can happen literally to anybody. That was the first time I was like, oh, like I, it was late. I, you know, yeah. like my, my, you know, kind of spidey sense wasn't going off because I was woken from a dead sleep. Well, the fact that and, it wasn't um, in an email too, you got, you got uh, approached like person to person. That yeah. can, you know. It was. And the person was very nice and there was crowd noise in the background uh-huh. and they sounded like they were downstairs in the lobby. I mean, I'm just, you know, it was really, wow. it was really good, but very, they got me cold. Very and, new. You, know, you read about this stuff and I knew about that. You know, I knew about that vulnerability and it was piece by piece by piece. And of course, you know, I reported it to the front desk and, you know, they had a policy against transferring people through. And so there was an investigation going on. It's still pending. It was in Memphis at a very popular hotel in Memphis. And um, anyway, it was just, it was a surprise to me. And that was the moment you want to talk about developing empathy, right? That right. develops instant empathy. You're like, oh, this could happen to anybody. I'm guessing that hotel had ducks. Is, is I'm gonna go they, the Yeah, it is a very popular hotel <laughs> yeah. that may have ducks. Yeah. Right. Um, so the Ed Surge article mentions a, a denial of service um, attack. Is that just basically clogging up your website? What, what do they mean by that? It's clogging up the network. So I know the article mentions that, and, and I remember when it happened, or one like it, that a student... Uh, and the story that I read about was during the spring assessment window, and they did not want to take the state assessments. Oh, wow. So this guy, the young student, uh, engineered a denial-of-service attack against the school network. And so during the assessment window, suddenly, because a lot of these assessments are online now, and they depend on some kind of network connection out to the Internet. And when that denial-of-service attack happened, it just flooded the network so that online assessments couldn't reach out and get and reply back. So for all intent and purposes, he shut down testing for that day. So this one's not really doing damage to the network, but it is slowing things down and it's causing a major hiccup. But if I remember right, even a few years ago, I think the FBI had had their website, FBI.gov, actually hit with a, is it called a DNS? Is that right? A a, a DDoS, DDoS. Okay, DDoS. And where basically people just flooded the website, so to speak, so no one could access the homepage. Right. But the headline was the FBI's website was hacked. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's probably not, I mean, what districts are quick to say in that situation is that there's really no disclosure of information. They'll say the firewall acted exactly as it should. Yeah. And usually what they do is that they'll they'll get the, not the IP address of the website because they're smarter than that now. They know that the website is usually hosted by some third party and it's usually behind a service like Cloudflare, which helps mitigate that risk. But they'll get the actual IP address. They'll do like a, what is my IP address.com and they'll get their IP address. And that way they know the actual IP address of the router and they'll just send junk traffic to it. And even if that router is set up not to respond to that junk traffic, there is still a rule there that has to be processed, a deny rule. And if you send, you know, not hundreds, but millions of these a second, it'll overwhelm almost any router that's out there. And so that's really when your choice of ISP becomes really important. If you're looking for like a bargain basement ISP, just the cheapest price for bandwidth, bandwidth is bandwidth is bandwidth. That's not always the case. Often 
um, these, your like ISP, who you buy your internet from often has like intrusion prevention and detection systems. And so truly they should be able to stop it on the upstream level. And um, sometimes it's, they're really very difficult to, to stop. Because they're, it's just the D and DDoS is just the first D is distributed, right? Mm-hmm. So it's coming from all over the place, and it's like, like a, if you ever are on Reddit or one of those sites, and you go to click on a website and it's down, it's basically DDoSing that site. There are, you know, whereas that website is, traffic. is, yeah, that's right. That website's designed to have a thousand people access it at any given time, and all of a sudden a hundred thousand people access it because it hits the front page of Reddit. It's a very similar thing that happens in a school district, it, but it's it, not necessarily a data disclosure, right. which is what most people think about. So this one's probably not, it, it can happen. Is there any really safeguards, but it's nothing major to worry about. Is there anything you can do to really prevent it other than have a good ISP? And, and for those that don't know, ISP is internet service provider, right? Yeah. You need a good internet service provider. You need to have your firewall tightened up. Um, also denial of service attacks can occur from the inside. And that's kind of what I have a company called school scan and we scan that stuff internally as well, but that's really where your biggest risk profile. Yeah, you're going to get DDoS on the outside, but you have a firewall there. But what happens when somebody's inside your firewall, right? How do you protect against it then? You have to start doing like switch access control lists. I mean, there's a bunch of like technical stuff you can do, but you really need to understand the nature of the risk and limit access um, down to like as far as far away from your core network as you possibly can. You need to be pushing the risk out there and risk detection out there. Does that make sense? Like you don't want you don't want a student to be able to log on to your network and get the same privilege as your accounting department, for instance. It is, like they really never need access to your accounting server. That's is, a good example. Is school stand basically like you, you guys are are doing audits for the district? Is that we we do audits as a portion of it, but the majority of it's automated. So here's the deal: every day, thousands of pieces of software we discover. Like not when I say we, I mean the internet at large discovers security flaws, and this software is used everywhere. So, like for instance, the Equifax. Uh, everybody's aware, like of the Equifax disclosure, right, where right. they disclose the credit profiles of mil- almost everybody in the U.S. who had one, right? And that wasn't due to somebody at Equifax. Um, you know, copying that on a flash drive and taking it out of their place. They have protections against that. It was because there was a piece of software that was used on their on their back end that happened to be forward facing, meaning people could access it from the internet. And there was a known vulnerability that had been fixed years before. But because they were not scanning for that vulnerability or had they actually in their case they did scan for it and just ignored it. Then somebody was able to exploit it and get and override the security mechanisms built into that software. And this happens every single day. And so what SchoolScan does is we just kind of scan the perimeter of the network, the firewall, the biggest pieces of equipment for these known vulnerabilities. And we disclose those um, so that people can fix them. And often it's just a matter of like, Dane, how many devices did you have in your school that you were responsible for? Thousands. Thousands, right? It's overwhelming, right? Yeah. Yeah, what are the chances of you getting good patch management on every single one of those devices? Uh, pretty low. <laughs> and so I want, I want everyone every listening, single one. when you say like, I just want everyone to understand, I'm going to try to bring this down a little bit. When you, you're saying Sorry. patch management, you're meaning like, all right, so people know that these vulnerabilities are out there. And as a technology director, it's kind of your responsibility to, to no, go. No, it's to, absolutely our responsibility. It, to go to, yeah, it's 100% your, yeah. your okay. job. So you're supposed to go to thousands of devices and update them, essentially, well, right? That's why it's really important to have enterprise management. So the majority of those devices for us have been Chromebooks. 
and Google has a really strong admin console so that I can easily manage, those users can easily manage those devices. Uh, the real uh, honeypots for you know these data breaches though a lot of times is a server-based device. Yep. And those aren't as, as um, many in most districts. So we might have 10 to 12 servers uh, and along, let's say, uh, 100 network devices, routers and switches, and firewalls and all that. So, um, you know, thousands of devices do exist, but really, generally, we're really concerned about that core uh, server and routing and switching environment. Um, but it's important to have, Russ has mentioned firewalls already, the, the newer types of firewalls, you know, we're notorious in education for using something until it just dies. Mm -hmm. But um, we, there's so much technology available in the, the newer firewalls that allow you to get insights into uh, end-user traffic. So those devices that you're managing that are so many, um, you can break up that traffic and really get insight into where it's coming from internally and externally and then what kind of traffic it is and then react to it. So that's really important in addition to the the scanning that, that Russ is talking about. So Russ, your your product, once it finds a vulnerability, d does it give the end user or your customer the opportunity to write there in the report, click on it and patch it, or at least read about what the vulnerability is? Yeah, absolutely. They can read about what it is and it has actually a section on, here's what to do to patch that piece of software. And the scary part is when you look at one and it goes, there's no fix for this, right? Yeah. Like this software has been deprecated, meaning that it's no longer supported. So you need to stop using that software. Well, what if that piece of software is running our accounting server, right? right? You can't stop yeah. using it. What do you do then? And so that's why like in education, a lot of the, like whenever I was a technology director back in like 2001 through 2003, four. Um, we like had like servers everywhere, right? And we would buy software, we'd put it on those servers. You know, we really didn't do a good job of patch management, meaning like keeping that software up to date because there weren't a lot of good solutions out there. And we ran a big Windows um, network. And so you'd have something like, um, I forgot what, the, forgot what it was called, like Red Alert or something like that. You'd have a worm that would make its way through our network and we just really couldn't stop it. And, you know, it was really a, a bad time. Well, now most modern school districts um, work to, keep as much stuff as they can in the cloud. Like they're not managing email servers. Probably 90% of the districts now either use Office 365 or Google Mail as their mail platform and they don't have a mail server. And so Google's already doing some things or Office 365 is already doing some things for you there. The more that you can push into the cloud, the better it is from a patch management perspective because you're hoping that vendor's doing their job, but it doesn't necessarily decrease your risk. In fact, I think it, and sometimes it increases your risk because you have more hands that, you know, you have, instead of dealing with one security policy within a district, you may be dealing with 50 or 60 security pro security policies at the, the district level. And the truth is, is that most districts just don't know how to contain that risk and they don't even track the security policies. Like there are pieces of software in use for education today that I can name, but I don't want to get sued. Right. Um, that are just terrible pieces of software that have known vulnerabilities and are very buggy, and but they're cheap, and no one's going to stop using them anytime soon. Does well, that make sense? Yeah, it does. And and let me ask this, and, and probably a better question for Dane. Like, is this too big of an undertaking for school districts? Like, I mean, when you go to these conferences, 
are, are your colleagues saying, you know, like, we don't know what we're doing? Well, I mean, typically in the education environment, those staffs are smaller than they need to be. Uh, so your ratio of a, a technician um, or even a network administrator to the number of devices uh, varies from school district to school district uh, and from state to state. But I think the general trend is that most are understaffed. So you do have uh, fewer people with their hands on the equipment or their hands in systems that are being managed or even aware of, you know, reporting that might come from some of the, the security devices that you might and systems that you put in place. Um, so that's always a challenge. And you've got uh, network administrators. They're also systems analysts. So they're maintaining virtual servers and servers, uh, physical servers. So uh, generally everybody's overtaxed, but it is still something that falls at the foot of the director of technology. And it's something they have to be aware of and try to, as Russ said earlier, mitigate as much as possible. The key isn't complete containment. Okay, that is impossible. Okay. You cannot completely contain your security risk. That is not possible. The the this gold standard is mitigation. There's no like IPS, like which is intrusion prevention system, and IDS, which is intrusion detection system. Like those things will help, but they will not ultimately make you 100% secure. And no product will, and no person will. You just have to mitigate that risk as much as reasonable. Like, hey, if you want to get rid of security risk in a school district, why don't we just eliminate all computers, right? It's an impossible job um, to secure risk 100%, but it is completely attainable to mitigate the risk to an extent that is reasonable, right? That everybody would understand, like, this is the, like, if something happens, these are the steps that we took and this is the things that we had in place. Where people run afoul, honestly, and I don't want to, like, pontificate here, is that a lack of clear policy? Like, what happens when there is a breach? What do we do, mm -hmm. right? Because often people make it worse and worse. Like they're trying to fix it themselves. Like if you, like if a server, there's a thing called CryptoLocker, right? Where if you run a, a malicious app on a server, or if you have admin rights in your network, it'll quietly go through and encrypt your server completely. And it actually happened to a school district here in Mississippi. Um, it'll completely encrypt that server and it will basically hold you ransom. Like it'll say, Hey, send, you know, $10,000 to this Bitcoin address. Is, is this or, ransomware? Is this what we're talking yeah, about? Yeah, this is yeah. ransomware, like okay. crypto locker, ransomware type stuff. And so like, what do you do? Well, fixing it may make it way worse. Well, first of all, mitigate the risk by disconnecting that device from the network. And sometimes it's a matter of pulling the plug on everything. Like stop, like this is cancer. Let's, let's cut it off right now. And let's, bring up devices in a controlled environment one by one and seeing if they're infected and then, you know, kind of isolate the risk and contain it before it infects our entire network. The problem is, is that most people don't have any kind of detection mechanism. And until somebody writes in, it's like, Hey, I can't access any of my word files. Then you go to that server and you see the crypto locker uh, or the ransomware e dot text file in that folder saying, send me money or this file's gone forever. And, you know, that's when like having a good backup process, like if you can just say, we're not paying the ransom. We're going to restore from last night's backup. Right. That's one thing. But if you don't have those policies and procedures to ensure you're getting a good backup every night, you're screwed. There's no good way other than paying paying them off. Is that something you guys did, Dane? Did you like constantly back stuff up? Or, and if you don't feel comfortable answering that, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. So here's some exposure mitigation. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, uh, you may not tell people who are listening to the podcast how vulnerable or invulnerable some school districts are in Mississippi. Uh, yeah, I think generally most districts... Uh, 
certainly back up, have some kind of backup plan. Uh, the joke has always been a backup plan is only as good as your restore plan. So you can have all the sure. backups you want, but if you can't restore from them and many times those aren't tested. Um, so even if you have a backup plan, then you still need to restore something every once in a while just to make sure it works. Mm-hmm. Um, along those lines, um, I was at a meeting, uh, at Metis, which is the Mississippi educational and technology innovation symposium. It's put on by the Mississippi department of education a few years ago. And they invited a group um, that's really focused on this kind of policy creation, and it's called the uh, Privacy Technical Assistance Center. So it's PTAC. PTAC, all right. Formally, and so this group came in and ran scenarios with the with the conference participants about data breaches, um, and made this the personnel in the in the conference think about in their district. Um, how would you respond? You know, and, and each scenario was different variations on a data breach, whether it was all the HR information or if it was student information or maybe it was just a, a group of documents that were stored in a cloud, a Google Cloud. Yeah, so basically account. role-playing with, exactly. with data. But, but they're a resource that's available for districts to go to the site studentprivacy.ed.gov and they will uh, work with you uh, one-on-one at times, you know, if you want that. But also, certainly, if you're a person who, you know, does create conference sessions or something like that, it's a good group and it's a great resource to sort of make school districts uh, go through those scenarios, develop their response mechanisms, and, and really have something in place and know what to do when something happens. Right. I feel like we could talk about this for hours and hours. And, and here's what I want. If somebody's listening to this and they want more of this, like, please email us and let us know and we will do more. We will dive deeper into all these topics. I mean, I think today we've kind of covered the denial of service, the phishing. We've touched on the ransomware a little bit. We've we've thrown out a few tips and given a few resources, but, but we can go deeper. So let us know if that's something that you want. I still want to get you both in on our pop quiz because you guys are our guest today. Sure. And um, we're going to do it quickly since there's two of, two of you here, but are you all ready? Do the pop quiz? Yes, let's go. All right. Let's do it. First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Literature. Russ. I agree. Literature. All right. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I'll, I'll take this with soft skills. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I think that there is a real problem with, with folks that keep their face in a screen all day, and they, they lack some soft skills. Um, you know, how to how to handle social situations, you know, just, I think that that is something that's really, really lacking these days. True. Yeah. Agree. All right. What does every child deserve? Freedom. Uh, A shot at a good education. I mean, truly like they deserve a quality education. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Uh, I'll, I'll take respect time. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, I think that health. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I think that honestly, um, educators are not considered. I mean, a lot of these folks have master's degrees, and they're not considered professionals. They're considered, you know, these guys get, you know, two two months off in the summer. And I think that that is incredibly dangerous to our our nation and education in general. And that's exactly where my mental health concept comes from. The <laughs> right. fact that they don't get respect, that there's outside pressures put on the classroom all the time, and their uh, freedom to teach the way they would like to teach is taken away. What's yep. the What's the best gift to give an educator? 
practically gift cards <laughs> uh, for school supplies and and things like that. And I'm going to go with the somewhat impractical, which is time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that time is the number one thing that you can give someone. And a lot of that just comes from what Dane talked about, which is like you, if you're, if you're an administrator in a school district, it is your job to advocate for your staff. And when something is unreasonable or is going to add an unreasonable burden to them, you say, no, unless I'm ordered to, I'm just not going to do that. Here's why. And I think that that takes a lot of guts, but I think it's, these are my peeps, right? These are the people that you know, I advocate for, this is my crew and I'm going to protect them. Which teacher changed your life? 11th grade English teacher. You want to say the name? Uh, Bobby Odom. Warren Central High uh, School. What did, what did Bobby Odom do for you that, that changed things? Um, sort of was the first person that held us accountable. Yeah. Yeah. Russ, how about you? Uh, two people. Unfortunately, I have to like split the answer. But fortunately for me, um, my mentor growing up was a teacher named Steve Sill. He was my eighth grade science or seventh grade science teacher. And he got me into computers in a big way, like programming, true programming. He gave me, I guess the statute of limitations has passed, but he gave me copies of like programming software, like Visual Basic. <laughs> and I learned how to program at a young age. And then secondarily, uh, a guy named George Wade, who passed away, unfortunately, about uh, almost 10 years ago now, um, who gave me a chance to be the network guy for our school district. And he went out and fixed computers while I did the network. And I was 16. Wow. And without that contribution, there's zero probability that I would have this company and do what I'm doing today. That's cool. Um, yeah. Last question, Dane, pen or pencil? Uh, pen all the time. Russ, how about you? Pencil. Everybody makes mistakes. And, and since since I do have two computer guys, pen or pencil over computer, or does computer win out? Uh, it depends on the situation. I've gotten to the point now where I have a notebook that I keep a lot of notes in just because it's quicker and easier and I also so, doodle. Like you, yeah, you physically draw yeah. into a notebook. I also doodle and draw during meetings a lot of times. It's just a preoccupation. <laughs> Thank you, Dane. Russ, yes. don't you do the same thing? <laughs> don't you also walk around with a notebook? I absolutely walk around with a notebook. And where I learned that from when I worked at the State Department, um, I learned it from a guy named Steve Hebler. And you could go back at any point in his career and find what he was working on and the notes from that. And let me tell you, it saves my behind at least once a quarter where I can go back and reference a time and date that something happened. And so whenever I'm done with a notebook, I use a, I use a very specific notebook, spiral bound at the top. And at the end of it, I write the dates um, for the rep, for the range on that book, and then I save it so that if I need to go back and see what happened on a day, I can go back and look at the notes. Can't be hacked. Can't be hacked. Can't be hacked. That's absolutely right. <laughs> All right, guys, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time. It was a, a fantastic interview. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thanks, guys. All see right. ya. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. We want to hear from you, so if you want to send us an idea or a comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So if you like what you heard today, please be sure and hit that subscribe button, and we'd also love it if you'd leave us a five-star review. Don't forget you can connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash classdismisspodcast or on Twitter. Just search for us by typing in Class Dismiss. On behalf of Russ with School Status and Lissa representing all the teachers out there, I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class Dismissed.